We're learning about the monumental fall of the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers at the walls of Jerusalem. And that's the last verse we read towards the end of chapter 19. It says, And it came to pass that night that an angel of the Lord went out and slew 185,000 soldiers of the camp of Assyria. And then we examine this miracle in, in the light of the historical data because you figure that when a superpower like Assyria goes down like this, the history books are going to be talking about it. And generally speaking, I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of the Bible, that it's happening in real time, in real history, as its background with nations and uh, that, that existed and kings that were known who walked the earth. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets, they're not, they're not walking around in a vacuum. They're not pro prophesizing in some vacuum or in some fairyland or some Greek mythology fables. They're existing and prophesizing in real time, in real history. So we saw how the different his, uh, historical scholars, they mentioned the downfall of Sanhuiv's army. Of course, everybody coming up with their own perspective. But we saw that more or less it, the historical data aligns nicely with the biblical account. Not that we needed to for proof for us. You know, you, you go, you're going to have the Bible critics and the scoffers. We'll, we'll always have fun trying to prove that this particular event in the Bible couldn't have happened or something else, comparing it to some historical finding. It happens all the time because at the end of the day, the Bible is finite written words where the divine is placed into something that's, that's, that's finite, into pages of a book. And therefore, once it's down on paper, well, it's open season. You can do what you want with it. It becomes clay in the hands of the potter. And so that's what people do. They look for contradictions and so forth. And I think there's almost an obsession with a lot of these Bible critics to prove the Bible wrong. Because if the Bible is true, if it's truly God's word, well, that kind of obligates you, doesn't it? And nobody wants to be obligated. So going back to the miracle, we see that it's alluded to in the Tanakh itself in several places. Within the Bible, we see a reference to this miracle. Obviously, something like this should set off shockwaves amongst the other nations in the region because they're also affected by it, and it does. So let's look at some, uh, some of the scripture regarding the nation's reactions to this miracle of the fall of Sanchriv and his army. So first, if you look at Isaiah chapter 19, verses 18 to 20, it says the following. On that day, there will be five cities in Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear by the name of Hashem, Hashem Tzvot, uh, the Lord of hosts. So we see that Egypt here, they're going to start speaking the language of Canaan. I guess they'll be speaking Hebrew. Five cities swearing by the name of Hashem Tzvot. That's the, that's the military connotation of Hashem, right? The Lord of hosts. They'll swear by that. Um, and on that day, there will be an altar dedicated to Hashem near its border. Okay, so the Egyptians are going to be doing this. Obviously, if you recall, the, the, the Egyptians, they had just been defeated soundly by Sanchriv before he came to Jerusalem. He had defeated Cush and Egypt, if you recall. So they're obviously overjoyed by this miracle. So it continues here in Isaiah. And this altar that they, they build there uh, at the border will be a sign and a witness to Hashem, the Lord of hosts, in the land of Egypt, that when they cry out to Hashem because of oppressors, He, that is Hashem, will send them a savior and a leader to deliver them. And Hashem will become known in Egypt. 
for the Egyptians will know Hashem on that day. So there you got it. Egyptian, the Egypts are down for the Lord of Israel. They're acknowledging the miracle. As you get the idea, um, the, the, the miracle made believers out of the nations because it was so unusual. Uh, in, in the following chapter as well, we're going to see in, here in chapter 20 and also in Chronicles 32, we're going to see that Chizkiyahu, he's going to be treated like King Solomon. The nations are visiting him, giving, pay, paying him kavod. It says in Chronicles, for instance, that the emissaries of Babylon who were sent to him to inquire about the miracle that happened in the land. So we see that the debacle of the Assyrians against Judea you know, was something that was a big deal and acknowledged by the nations. So now let's finish up the chapter. We haven't finished it. We got a, two more verses to go. We have to kind of finish off King Sankriv over here. So it says like this in verse 36. So Sankriv sees all his soldiers are slain. He sees a bunch of corpses, 185,000 corpses. So it says, Sankriv, the king of Assyria, he left, he went away, he returned, and he dwelt in Ninveh. Now, when you see a verse like that with a lot of extra verbs, you don't have to say all these verbs. You can just say, Sankhriv, the king of Syria, returned to Ninveh. What is this? He left, he went away, and he returned, and he dwelt. I mean, it's very choppy, right? So when you see like a choppy kind of reading like that, Vayasav, Vayalech, Vayashav, uh, that means uh, usually despondency. You know, he's going back, uh, lethargic, not very excited, you know, obviously. And uh, it says in Chronicles, it adds something else. And he returned ashamedly to his land. So obviously he's not doing this um, out of with any simcha. The opposite, the, the verses show the, the depression in going back to Ninveh with his tail between his legs. And now the final verse, verse 37. And while he was bowing down in the temple of Nisrach, his God, he's got some God named Nisrach, while he's bowing down there, Adramelech v'shar Etzer, these are the names of two people, Adramelech and Shar Etzer, Hikau, they slew him, Becherev, with a sword, and they, they fled to the land of Ararat, these assassins, they, to Ararat was not under the jurisdiction of Assyria. They fled there. That, so, so after that, when they fled, he, has a, he had a son named Asar Hadon, and he reigned in his stead. So he's assassinated by Adramelech and Sharetzer. Now, Isaiah the prophet, also talks about this event, and it says that they were his sons. For some reason, it's left out of the narrative in the book of Kings, but Adramelech and Sharetzer, his son slew him, and they fled. And then this Asar Chadon reigns in his stead. So another son reigns in his stead. Um, okay, kind of shocking that Sankrif is murdered, you know, in such uh, brutal fashion by his own family. Okay, so let's talk about the murder of Sankhriv because this is also a big deal. It's an event. Sankhriv was a known king. Obviously, this is talked about as well amongst the historians and the Assyriologists. First of all, it was also forecasted by the prophet Isaiah. If you go back to verse seven in this chapter, remember the first time he appears to Chizkiyahu's servants. They ask him for counsel. And what does Isaiah tell them? He says, I will insert in him a desire. He will hear a rumor and return to this land, and I will cause it to fall by the sword in his land. 
So Isaiah said he's going to fall by the sword in his own land. In that we saw that very concise verse in chapter in verse seven in, in our chapter. And it's really when you first look at the verse, it seems like the prophecy is a little bit off because it says he's going to hear a rumor and return to his land, and I'll cause him to fall by the sword in his land. Now, if you go, he didn't. That's not what really happened. He didn't go back to his land because of some rumor. He went back because he saw his men were all slain. But if you look at it again, it depends how you read it. Think of what transpired since that prophecy was given. I will insert with him a spirit. He will hear a rumor. Again, I'm going back to verse 7 in our chapter, Isaiah's prophecy. I will insert with him a spirit. He will hear a rumor. That's the first part of the prophecy. That's when he left Lachish. Remember, he was had a campaign against Judea. He conquered Lachish. And then he had a diversion, left Lachish, and he went to fight Cush in Egypt because he heard a rumor. We discussed that. Now, the second part of the prophecy is he will return to his land and fall by the sword. That's just what happened now. So this short prophecy was actually right on the money. But it was just talking about two different events. The first event was Sanchri's diversion to leave Lachish and fight Cush. And second, much later on, he went back to his land and got murdered there. So it depends how you read it. And prophecies are usually like that. They can be understood in, in, in a few different ways. Even in, in the Chumash, in the five books of Moses, you have a famous prophecy where Hashem tells Avraham, he says like this to Abraham, very famous prophecy in Genesis 15. He says to Abraham, you surely know that your seed, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will enslave them and oppress them for 400 years. So that's the famous prophecy in Beit Pitarim. So if you listen to that, it sounds like we're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But we know it turned out to be a lot less than that. We were slaves for about 86 years. Because it depends how you define your descendants. It depends how you define in a land not theirs. So the counter to 400 wasn't starting from when they got to Egypt. It was actually much earlier. The countdown was from the birth of Isaac. And this happens all the time. We're not going to get into the whole thing, but you get the point that's a lot of different factors that can affect the prophecy. It's kind of open-ended because there's always free choice and um, a lot of factors that can either slow it or speed it up. Okay, so let's figure out what happened to Sanchif. Let's go back to the our verses. It says he was praying to the god Nisroch and was murdered by his sons. Rashi says that Nisroch was a plank. It was, what's a nisroch? The root of the word is neser, which is a wooden plank. So he was bowing down to this plank of wood because it was a plank of wood from Noah's Ark. The Assyrians found the plank from Noah's Ark. Maybe that's why we have Ararat mentioned here because we know Noah's Ark was around Ararat. Anyway, they found this plank and that's nisroch. He was bowing to that. They made a temple out of it. And it could be, obviously, Sanchiv is kind of changing gods up. You know, he's changing things up because his previous God didn't do too well against the God of Israel. So he's shifting to Nisrach over here. Now, why would his sons murder him? Why would sons murder their own father? Well, you got two reasons given. One is more like the Pshat, that um, there's, let's say, a Pshat reason and an agotic source. So the, the more historical reason is that the princes of Assyria, they were upset with Sanchriv for getting their sons killed in all these wars. And um, they were going to kill him. So he preferred to have his son slay him and not these princes. Now, it sounds kind of crazy, but we do understand that you could see that after he was defeated at Judea, that's always the worst thing that can happen to a king. When you get defeated in war and it happens in a, in a, in a real bad way, well, you know they're going to be looking to overthrow you. We see that throughout history. A king losing a war or a couple of wars is the worst thing that, that can happen to him. 
And so they were seeking to overthrow him. Now the Radak brings the Midrash. Now this is an agudic source. And it says like this, Sanchriv asked his wise men, what merit did the Jewish people have that God would save them from my hand and destroy my camp? So they replied to him, oh, well, they have a patriarch named Abraham who brought his son for a sacrifice. Akedat Yitzchak, he was ready to sacrifice his son. So what did Sanchriv say? He replied, hey, I'll offer my two sons to my God. And when his sons heard this, they said, oh, no, you're not. So they killed him before he could get them. Now, something else about the, uh, the death of Sanchriv, if you look at the Assyrian records, we know he lived at least another 10 years after, after he returned to Nineveh. He didn't get killed right away. He, li he lived at least 10 more years because it says he's listed as dying in 60, 681 before the Common Era and the campaign in Judea was about 700 before the Common Era. And so um, the records show that he even had a campaign against Babylon before getting murdered. And that's why most of the historians, they reject the biblical narrative here that he was killed by Adramelech and, Sh and, and Sharetzer. What it says here, they reject it because according to the Bible, it sounds like he got murdered right away. And so they reject everything and they like to say that Asar Chadon, the son who reigned in his stead, he's the one who killed his father Sanchriv and then he inherited the throne. See, actually though, it's not a problem for us that Sanchriv lived a decade after he returned to Nineveh. First of all, what does it say in verse 36 here? It says he returned and dwelt in Nineveh. It sounds like he was there for a while. And even if you go back to Isaiah, what did he say? He will return to his land and die by the sword. But Isaiah didn't say how long it's gonna take him to get whacked after he returns. And that's a common mistake. When you try to take the prophecy at its most simple level, you say, he will return to his land and die by the sword. It sounds like it's going to happen right away, but not, not necessarily, because we said the prophecy is often open-ended. It's not always exact. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it gives names and, and, and time exact, but a lot of times it's kind of open-ended because you have to let the free choice kick in. Remember, the prophecy doesn't block free choice, and therefore it's a little bit flexible. Anyway, why do I bring this up about the assassin of uh, Sanchriv? Because... There's a recent book, which again is going to prove out the Bible in the end is right. And it's written, it was published in 1980 by an Assyriologist, a famous one, Sima Parpola. And he wrote a book called The Murder of Sanchriv. You can look it up. Murder of Mesopotamias. The Murder of Sanchriv. And he writes in the book that for a long time, Assyrian scholars, they were fascinated with the question, who killed Sanchriv? Which one of his sons did it? And like I said, most claimed it was a Sanchadon, this son here who took over. Um, and that, of course, goes against our verses in the Bible that it was Adramelech and Sharetzer. Now, this Simon Parpolo, who wrote this book, he actually bases his book on a fragmented letter. There's a fragmented letter from like 2,700 years ago, and it proves that it was Adramelech who did it, that the Bible was right. He's the one who hatched the conspiracy. And again, that bears out what's written here. And just a little bit from his book called The Murder of Sanchriv. It says like this. And uh, there was a person who gained knowledge of the assassin plot, the, uh, the assassination plot, some person in Assyria, and requested an, audi an audience with the king. He wanted to inform the king of the plot. But he couldn't uh, be sent directly to the palace because ordinary people were not allowed to look at the king in those days because the king is supposed to be some kind of deity. They want to keep the mystique. So 
He was questioned at the beginning by two Assyrian officials. And then this man is taken, not to the king, but to Adromelech, the son of the king, and the very person he wanted to inform on. So Adromelech's face is covered. And this poor guy is under the illusion, he's speaking to the king, and he declares, your son Adromelech is going to kill you. And of course, after that, this poor man is put to death. In any case, whoever killed Sanchriv, we see that again, it's being borne out here by this book. It was Adramelech after all. And uh, we're going to now, Mizrat Hashem, uh, finish the, we finished the chapter. We're going to go on to chapter 20, which will still be a chapter all about the great and righteous King Chizkiyahu.